All right, so we are continuing what we've been doing the last couple weeks. We've been uh, doing an eschatology series, um, and uh, this is the third part, and next week Dustin will close out this series. Again, eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen regarding the future judgment of the world, the second coming of Christ, um, the resurrection of the saints, and the chronology of all the events that lead up to those things. Um, again, eschatology, the study of last things, uh, is generally a secondary issue in the church. It's non-essential for, sal for salvation. That means it's not an issue that the church should divide over if we disagree on certain points. We as elders may have differing points of view on certain aspects of eschatology, um, or you guys may disagree with one or more of us on certain aspects, and that's okay. You know, we can have civil in-house debates over these things as long as we rec recognize that these are not points of division and we approach it humbly. Amen. That being said, um, this does not mean that eschatology is unimportant. Uh, it's, it is very important to our biblical worldview. How we understand eschatology has an, an impact on, on how we live our lives and, and what we are expecting as far as God's plan in the future. And in these unprecedented, time, unprecedented times that we are living in, we need to have a firm understanding of what is clear in Scripture and what is not clear um, regarding the future of the church. One aspect of eschatology that is abundantly clear and is an essential part of our faith is that Christ will return to earth visibly in the future. And we see this in the scriptures plainly stated, Acts 1.11, And the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's a visible return that we are expecting because scripture tells us this. And there are many passages that describe Christ, Christ's second coming, but the details that surround his second coming is where the church throughout history has had some differing interpretations. And we are examining the three major eschatological systems that the church has debated for, for over 2,000 years, for, well, for 2,000 years maybe. The premillennial view the amillennial view, and the post-millennial view. Now let me, let me remind you, there are very good teachers and theologians in every camp, okay, guys I listen to in, in, in multiple camps that I re really respect, but I think the church has not been able to unify on one particular view throughout history because God has purposely veiled some of the chronological prophetic details that lead to his second coming. In fact, I think he tells us this in 1 Corinthians 13.8. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So we won't know the, all the answers to a lot of these eschatological debates that we engage in until the perfect Christ and his kingdom is fully manifested. But when they are fulfilled completely, it will be clear when they, were, when they are fulfilled. Many of the prophecies of Christ's first coming were not clear prior to his coming. But as Mark illustrated last week, uh, when they were fulfilled, it was abundantly clear. Um, but regarding prophecies of Christ's second coming, we all agree it is yet future, and we can know in part what to expect and know enough to prepare ourselves spiritually and physically. And this is why eschatology is important for, for what we can, can know. And Mark Choma, a couple weeks ago, gave a very thorough and very compelling presentation of the premillennial view. Um, remember, the premillennial uh, view simply means that Christ will return prior to this 1,000-year millennium, millennium, and he will reign on earth. Mark Merklinger last week gave a, a summary of the amillennial view. And remember, the amillennial view believes that the millennium began with Christ's first coming and that Christ will return at the end of this metaphorical 1,000-year period that we are currently in. That's what amillennialists believe. Today, I will be discussing the post-millennial view. Now, one thing to remember, post-millennialism and amillennialism are very similar in many ways. In fact, in the 17th century, when men like John Owen started introducing post-millennial views, they were called amillennialists. So it's very similar. The only major difference between the amillennial view and the postmillennial view is that amillennialists believe that as time progresses towards Christ's return, things will get worse and worse. The persecution of the church will get worse and worse. Postmillennialists believe that the gospel will spread and things will get better and better and better before Christ returns. So personally, I do not subscribe to an amillennial view or a post-millennial view. I like to say that I lean in the post-millennial side while standing with my feet firmly placed in the pre-millennial view. Okay? Um, I, like, I, I believe in an optimistic historical pre-mill view. And I'm going to share what I mean by that later. I think there are important aspects of the post-millennial view that are true, absolutely true, biblical, but I have some serious problems with other aspects of the view. So today I want to give an overview of the post of postmillennialism, and then give my opinion of it uh, and defend that by scripture. And then I'm going to share what do we do with all this info? What does it mean for us today? Mm. Of course, the word post in the term postmillennial means something that comes after something. So this is in reference to Christ returning after the millennium. So if you don't know, if you don't remember what we're talking about when we talk about the millennium, look into your scriptures there, Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Oops. <clears throat> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones that, and, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. That's us, okay? Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So I'll stop there. Uh, notice the emphasis on this 1,000-year period mentioned six times in this passage. This is what's referred to as the millennium. And how we interpret the timing of Christ's return in relation to this millennium period will affect how we interpret other eschatological scriptures throughout the Bible. And let's start by taking note of the key details of this passage that are given to us in the text. Uh, and the details that describe what happens in this millennium period. And it begins with Satan being bound, but not just bound, then being thrown into a sealed, bottomless pit, the abuso in Greek. And he's thrown there in, by an angel. He is not annihilated during this time, but he is kept, prevented from being able to deceive the nations in any way, shape, or form. You, then also you have the resurrection of the church and those who were killed for Christ and those who did not take the mark of the beast, suggesting that the mark of the beast preceded the millennium because they reigned with Christ for the thousand years. Then in Revelation 20, at the end of this 1,000-year period, the rest of the dead are resurrected, showing that there are two distinct resurrections separated by this millennial period. And this is, there's, there's a mentioning of how blessed the people are who share in the first resurrection and that the second death has no power over them, suggesting that those who do not share in the first resurrection are under the power of the second death, which is condemnation, cast into the lake of fire with Satan. So during this period, during this thousand years, those who do, who do share in the first resurrection will reign with Christ for this 1,000-year period. Then after the 1,000 years is ended, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit for a period of time and allowed again to deceive the nations before being cast once and for all into the lake of fire. So that's a summary of the millennium and what happens right after that. <laughs> and again, in the premillennial view, Jesus physically returns to start the millennium and then reigns on earth with his resurrected saints during this period while Satan is bound and sealed in the bottomless pit. However, the, in the post-millennialist and the amillennialist view, they both believe that right now we are currently in this millennial period that's being described in Revelation 20 and that Christ is ruling and reigning from heaven in and or through his church. 
They teach that the millennium began with Christ's first coming or at his ascension into heaven. There are many passages in the gospel, in the gospels, uh, where Jesus said something like this, the kingdom of God has, has come upon you, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So post-millennialists and amillennialists interpret Jesus as saying that the, when he, Jesus said that, he's saying the millennial reign has begun. Okay? And since it has been 2,000 years since he said that, almost, post-millennialists and amillennialists thus interpret the millennium as a metaphorical 1,000-year period, not a literal 1,000 years. And that Jesus is in the process right now of setting up his kingdom, as I said, ruling on earth from heaven in and or through his people. Now, this is very messy, okay, when we, go, when we start to look at this in detail. Because, remember, Satan is supposed to be bound and cast into a sealed, bottomless pit. Scripture tells us that. During this 1,000-year period, he is unable to deceive the nations. That's what it says. He isn't just restrained. He is also cast into a sealed, bottomless pit. Now, yes, this may be metaphoric in what it's describing, but the metaphor communicates a complete cutting off of Satan from the nations. Not just the church, the nations. Yet, in Scripture, we see that Satan is actively deceiving during Christ's ministry on earth and after his ascension. And if, turn, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, <clears throat> these are the letters to the seven churches, and this particular one was to the church at Pergamum. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is after the ascension. This is after, long after Christ's ministry. If the millennium began with Christ's advent or after Christ's ascension, as the post-mill and amillennialists claim, and Satan is bound and sealed in the bottomless pit, how does he have an active throne, a position of authority where the church of Pergamum was? How does he dwell there? Postmillennialists and amillennialists will try to get around this by saying that Satan, when, and when it talks about him being cast into the bottomless pit, they're saying he's just restrained. He's just limited in what he can do. But in Revelation 20, it says that he is not just restrained, but that he is bound and cast into a bottomless pit and the pit is sealed. Satan has always, from the beginning of time, been limited in what he can do. Just remember the account of Job. God limited what Satan can do in, effect, in touching Job's life. No, Revelation 20 goes beyond the language of limitation and restraint and says that Satan will have no ability to deceive the nations. Post-millennial advocates will say, well, that he is only restrained from deceiving those that are in Christ, those that are faithful. But the passage does not say that. The passage says he is restrained from deceiving the nations. Scripture and our present reality testify to the fact that Satan is still currently able to deceive both the church and the nations, and Peter warned the church about this. In 1 Peter 5.8, he said, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom someone to devour. 
If Satan prowls around like a lion seeking to devour people, whether they're in the church or not, he is not bound and thrown into a sealed bottomless pit. He is able to deceive the nations. Therefore, the millennium period of Revelation 20 cannot have already begun. So when, J when Jesus said the kingdom of God has come upon you or the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was not referring to the millennial reign. He was referring to the now, but the not yet. Have you, have you ever heard that term before? The now, but the not yet? Well, it's, it's kind of like how right now, if you're a believer, you are saved, but the full manifestation of your salvation has not occurred yet. We're still struggling with sin. We're still living in this fallen state, but we're saved. We, we are sinless standing before God. Um, which is why Jesus can say, to his disciples, the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then also tell his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come. Okay, the now and the not yet. Anyway, in the post-millennial view, they hold that the gospel will have such a global impact over time that the world will be Christianized and then Jesus will return. They believe that the gospel during the time that we are in right now, the age that we are in right now, it will spread throughout the world over time. And because of that, things will get better and better through the sanctifying influence of the church. This is what distinguishes post-millennialism from amillennialism. Okay? As the amillennial view holds that the church will continually suffer until Christ returns. Amillennialists hold that Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his elect people on earth. And that even though things get worse and worse, God achieves his vic the victory that he wills in saving a remnant for himself. And in that, Christ's enemies are subdued and defeated because God saves all whom he desires to save. That's the amillennial view. So they, they spiritualize the submission and defeat of God's enemies and limits the scope of it to just the salvation of God's elect. Whereas post-millennialists hold to a more literal and broad submission of God's enemies to his moral law. Anyway, the post-millennial view asserts that all of the prophecies that are given in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 through chapter 19 were fulfilled in the first century in the events that surrounded the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. The postmillennialist argues that John, writing Revelation before 70 AD, in his time and from his perspective, said that these prophecies were to be fulfilled soon. Revelation 1.1 says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So if these things were not somehow fulfilled in the first century, it seems hard to interpret the word soon as being something that will happen some 2,000 or more years later. So I can understand the post-millennial view here. Although there are some Greek scholars that interpret this word that's translated to soon um, to mean that when the things begin to happen, that they will happen quickly, okay? So there's, there's a scholar, legitimate scholarly debate over that Greek interpretation. And 
None of us are qualified to question that, okay? Because none of us are Greek scholars. But there are good people on both sides of that debate. Anyway, postmillennialists view Revelation 1-7 as a proclamation of Christ's coming to judge Israel in 70 AD. Turn to Revelation 1-7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who, who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wait on account of him. Will wail, well, I'm sorry, wail on account of him. My eyes are going. <laughs> even so, amen. So postmillennialists interpret the when it says every eye seeing him here, they interpret that metaphorically. And they, they, they say that this is just a metaphoric statement of Christ when he would come in judgment to judge Israel through the Roman armies that were besieging Israel in 70 AD. Um, and they, they link a metaphoric interpretation of this to what Jesus said to the high priest in his trial in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, 64, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. It said, Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. He's talking to the high priest. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, the, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this is a compelling case to say that to interpret Revelation 1-7 is, is a metaphoric seeing of Christ coming in his judgment. Uh, Postmillennialists claim the term, uh, all the tribes of the earth in Revelation 1-7, is speaking of the 12 tribes of the land of Israel. In addition, postmillennialists interpret the seven seals of judgment in Revelation 6 and the seven trumpets of Revel in Revelation 8 as being prophecies of when the Romans would besiege and destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. They see the 70th week of Daniel, or what we call the seven-year tri Great Tribulation period, um, as being fulfilled in the events that surrounded 70 AD. They see the 144,000 saved Jews in Revelation 7 as Jews who recognized Christ as Messiah during that time. Also, Revelation 7 tells us that these 144,000 believing Jews were given a spiritual seal on their foreheads that marked them as God's people. A spiritual seal. Now, postmillennialists will apply and contrast this spiritual mark to the mark of the beast that's given to the condemned in Revelation 13. In the sense that the post-millennialist post view sees the mark of the beast not as a physical mark that people get, but as a spiritual mark on their head or their hand. So we, we may then wonder, how does a spiritual mark allow someone to buy or sell in the scriptural context of what is described in the mark of the beast? Because if you remember, in Revelation 13, it says that in order to buy or sell, people have to take this mark of the beast. Kind of like the vaccine mandate. You can't do anything unless you have a mandate <laughs> or the card. Um, anyway, that's besides the point. But, so how, <laughs> we're not there yet. How could, the, how could the mark be only spiritual, and how could it have been fulfilled in the first century as post-millennialists teach? Well, postmillennialists explain this by the fact that in the first century, Emperor Nero enforced a law in Rome. 
that you had to light incense to Caesar and call him Lord. And then you were given a document uh, that would give you permission to buy or sell in the marketplace. So according to the post-millennial view, the mark described in scripture on the head or hand, that is a spiritual mark, but it manifested itself in this physical document that Nero gave out to people. Of course, the premillennial view holds to a yet future and more literal or physical fulfillment of the mark of the beast. Uh, as for the beast himself, well, postmillennialists assert that the number of the beast, if you remember, 666, not 666, not 6.66, 666 pointed to the Roman Emperor Nero. That's what they believe. Nero reigned as Roman Emperor from 54 to 68 AD. And the number 666 points to Nero through a system called gematria, wherein the letters of the Hebrew alphabet also possess numeric value instead of just having numeric characters in their language. Allegedly, John, was in, in, in writing Revelation, was inviting his readers to transliterate the Greek name Nero Caesar into Hebrew. And in Hebrew, it would have been Neron Kaiser, and the numeric value of this name is 666. Another manner in which the postmillennialists identify Emperor Nero as the beast that John was referring to in the first century is in the seven-headed beast of Revelation 17. In Revelation 17, 9, if you want to look at that, says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes into destruction. Whatever that means. Um... Like I said, this stuff's veiled. <laughs> but postmillennialists link Nero to this by interpreting this seven-headed beast as referring to the seven emperor, the first seven emperors of Rome. The five kings who have fallen would have historically been Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius Caligula, Claudius, and then the sixth, the one who is, historically, was Nero. This is one of the internal evidences that John wrote uh, that he wrote Revelation before 70 A.D. If he, if indeed he was speaking of Nero as the one who is this this beast, and these are all compelling arguments for the post mill view that these prophecies were fulfilled in the first century. But the view still depends on the idea that we are currently in a metaphorical 1,000 year millennial period. However, this is one of the several key aspects of the postmillennial view that is hard for me to swallow. First of all, when God emphasizes events surrounding a period of time with a number, and it's repeated in the same way six times, I think God is intending for us to recognize a literal number, a literal 1,000 years. Now, yes... There are other passages in scripture where the term 1,000 or 1,000 is used metaphorically. So why don't we interpret 1,000 metaphorically in Revelation? Because in 1 Chronicles 16, 15, it says, Remember his covenant forever, 
the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Psalm 50.10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 84.10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Okay, the context and gen genres of these passages clearly establish a metaphoric understanding of the number 1,000. However, in Revelation 20, you have events that mark the beginning and the end of this thousand-year period and everything that happens in between it. And it's repeated six times. This is very different than how the word is used in those other verses. Think about this hypothetically. Think about 1 Chronicles 16.15. I read, I read it to you. It said, remember, this, his, remember, remember his covenant, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Think about if, just hypothetically, if before this passage it, it, it said at the beginning of the thousand generations, such and such happened. During the thousand generations, such and such happened. And then at the end of the thousand generations, such and such happens. Suddenly this passage would take on a much more literal historical context with regard to the number of generations. And, and that is what we see in Revelation 20, a repeated prophetic narrative which su suggests the 1,000-year period is literal and not to be taken metaphorical. I understand that there is a lot of metaphoric imagery in the book of Revelation, a ton of it, <laughs> but not everything in the book is to be taken symbolically. Even post-millennialists do not interpret everything in Revelation metaphorically. They pick and choose what they interpret as metaphoric and what is literal based on how it fits within their eschatological system. We all do that. And that's why we can't say dogmatically say one view is right or wrong. Um, but Revelation, turn with me to Revelation 8-7. I want to give you an example of how post-millennialists will bounce back and forth between literal and metaphoric interpretations. Revelation 8-7 says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And, the, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Postmillennialists generally teach that when this says a third of the trees and the grass were burned, they think that this is literally referring to how the Roman army burned many of the trees that surrounded Jerusalem during the 70 AD siege. Yet when the passage refers to a great mountain being thrown into the sea, postmillennialists um, teach that that is symbolically referring to the Jewish leadership, the Jewish government being toppled, and that the sea is symbolically referring to Gentile nations that consume the Jews. But then, when it talks about a third of the ships being destroyed, postmillennialists go back to a literal interpretation, saying that this was predicting when the Romans pursued Galileans out on the Sea of Galilee and, and destroyed their ships and killed them. But this is speculative picking and choosing of literal versus non-literal interpretations, and it doesn't end there. Postmillennialists interpret the number of the heads on the dragon that we looked at earlier as a literal number seven. Seven heads that represented seven emperors. They don't see seven as a symbolic number. 
They, it, it, that doesn't mean seven. <laughs> 666 is interpreted as a literal number used to identify the beast. It's not a symbolic number that doesn't really mean 666. But according to the postmillennialist, the 1,000-year period mentioned six times in Revelation 20 can't really mean 1,000. And that's, for, for, for the postmillennialist and the amillennialist, it must mean an unknown period of time. And that's just hermeneutical inconsistency. <laughs> anyway, postmillennialism teaches that in this, the present age, which they interpret to be the millennium of Revelation 20, the Holy Spirit will draw multitudes to Christ. And as a result of this, they see the church influence the, influencing the world in such a way that the saints will rule on earth and create a kind of Christianized republic where God's law and principles rule in society as the normative standard. In other words, Christ reigns through his church on earth. So according to the post-mill view, at the end of this golden age that is allegedly in the process of developing right now, Christ will return and there will be a general resurrection of the just and the unjust and the final judgment will take place. And this is where the final nail in the coffin for me regarding postmillennialism took place. <laughs> because Revelation 20 does not conflate the resurrection of the just and the unjust into one event that happens at the end of the age. If you look back at Revelation 20, I want to read verses 4 through 6 again, just to remind you. I know this is a lot of heady stuff. We're going to get to the application. Just bear with me. Be patient. Um, Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we see a period of time right there between the resurrections of these two groups, specifically a thousand years. The post-mill post view tries to spiritualize the resurrection of the martyrs, saying that they were not literally resurrected from the dead, but that they came to faith in Christ and came to life spiritually. And this makes no sense in the context because the context, the passage, talks about these martyrs being physically killed, beheaded for Christ, and then coming back to life at the beginning of the 1,000 years. The post-mill view requires there to be a general resurrection at the end of the millennial period that we are in. Or else, the church would have had to have been resurrected in the first century when they view the millennium as beginning. And post-millennialists realize that that is very problematic for many reasons. Which is why they go to great lengths to try to conflate these resurrections into one that will happen at the end of the millennium. Um... But the plain reading of the text clearly shows there are two distinct resurrections. There are more problems with the post-mill view that I could spend a lot of time going into and mentioning, but I just don't have the time right now. 
But despite all this, despite all these problems I see with the post-mill view, there are aspects of post-millennialism that I believe are true and biblical and actually fit within the historical pre-mill view. And what do I mean? Well, the church is called to be salt and light. Matthew 5.13 tells us this. We are called to preserve this fallen world like salt preserves dead meat. <laughs> we are called to be light to guide the world in this present darkness. To proclaim the holiness and righteousness of God and his authority above all things as part of the full gospel. Matthew 28.18-20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... Because he has all authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Jesus commanded us to be making disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Making disciples, as Dustin talked about earlier, making disciples of our kids, our friends, our family, and not just getting them to say a sinner's prayer, not just getting them to get dunked in water. The church should be disciplining, discipling others to uphold the holiness and righteousness of God through the conduct of their lives while asserting Christ's authority in every realm of society. This means in asserting Christ's authority, we should be speaking the truth into all realms of society, even the forbidden political realm. <laughs> I, I, I have had many Christians, even pastors, tell me that I need to love my neighbor and be silent on certain divisive political issues. Things like abortion, LGBTQ issues, BLM issues, social justice, the death penalty, the separation of church and state, all that stuff. You can't talk about that stuff. It's, it's going to be divisive. Don't use the Bible to address these issues. It could be inter interpreted as hate speech. This may scare seekers away from Christ. It may divide the church. It may alienate people sitting in the pews. That's what I've been told by pastors. But is being silent on issues of God's moral law an act of love? Should we avoid talking about the real-world application of God's holiness, righteousness, and true justice? When Proverbs 31.8 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I had someone tell me the other day, that, or a few weeks ago, that Christians should give up their rights for others. That's Christ-like. People who say this seem to forget that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified because he refused to stop speaking the truth. He didn't give up his rights. He exercised his right and challenged the political authorities of his day that were leading people astray. And he and the apostles took the consequences. If I give up my rights and just go along with godless tyranny, how can I defend the rights of others? How am I asserting the lordship of Christ by bowing to tyrants? Many Christians today seem to be under the impression that we are living in two realms. 
the realm of God's kingdom, and the realm of human government. Many wrongly assume that there are two separate and distinct entities that should not be intertwined in Christian missions. The separation of church and state. These Christians who say this tell me that Christ's kingdom is not of this world. After all, Jesus said that. So you can't be going all, being all political. Well, let's look at what Jesus said in John 18, 36. Jesus answered, said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from of this world. But in this verse, Jesus wasn't making a case for the separation of church and state, saying that there are two distinct realms of authority. No, Jesus was talking about the differences in methods being used between a worldly kingdom and his kingdom. He was saying that if his kingdom were a worldly kingdom, there would be an invading army coming to set him free, using warfare to forcefully establish his throne. But Jesus was saying because his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, it will conquer the world in a very different way. He would conquer the world through his death and resurrection through the proclamation of the gospel, which includes the proposition, not the imposition, of God's moral law. Today, because of the gospel, there are more Christians in the world than there were people on the planet in Jesus' day. But also, the spread of the gospel over time and the resulting influence of God's moral law on governments and cultures has preserved the world like salt on dead meat. The influence of Christ's kingdom and the upholding of his righteous standards has sustained and changed the world politically and morally for the better, even among the unbelieving world to some degree. Anyway, I said all that to say this. We don't live in two separate realms of authority. Jesus is king of kings. Kids. Listen up. This is time for you to listen, all you children out there. You need to understand that our faith is not something we keep to ourselves. Okay? Um, it's not something that we hide and just talk about here in church. The world tells us this, the world tells us that this is what we should do. Okay? But we answer to a higher authority. We answer to a higher authority, you answer to a higher authority than your teachers at school. Our ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. Not a teacher, not our boss, not a cop, not a governor, certainly not a president. <laughs> we as Christians are representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And the authorities in this world are tools used by God to uphold his justice. And when those tools try to rule in contradiction to God's moral law, we, as his ambassadors, are not required to submit to such tyranny. But rather, we as ambassadors of Christ should be warning those lesser authorities, those lesser magistrates, of God's wrath and calling them to repentance. We're not to resort to violence, but to civil disobedience. 
Just as Christ and the apostles exercised civil disobedience to the Pharisees and later to the Romans, we are to vocally assert the lordship of Christ in every sphere of our lives, including politics and government, even when we know the world will reject us or even imprison us. Those who are supporting abortion, cultural Marxism, the LGBTQ agenda, and those who dismiss and or twist scripture are zealously infiltrating the church right now, causing confusion, pressuring leaders into compromise and silence. Schools are deceiving our youth into accepting their moral standards, exchanging God's law for man's law. And you kids who are in public schools, you need, you need to understand that teachers are not perfect. <laughs> and they may be deceiving you on certain issues because they are deceived themselves. And when they wave those rainbow flags or tell you that you evolved from apes or that we all have our own truth, you need to recognize that they are in rebellion to their king. So talk to your parents when, when, when teachers say things like this so you can filter out the lies and understand what's true and what is not. Talk to your parents about what schools are teaching. Adults, I'm addressing you now, we as Christ's ambassadors must therefore open our mouths and hold these authorities in this world accountable. Accountable to their ultimate authority, who is Jesus Christ. This is where I've realized that certain aspects of our view of eschatology really matter. Turn to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And this passage is the passage that post-millennialists often go to to defend their view. And I agree with them on this particular issue. Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, and Lord is all in caps there, so it's Yahweh. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus himself interpreted this verse in Psalm 110 to be referring to God the Father speaking to him. He said this in Matthew 22. Jesus is to sit at the right hand of the Father until the world submits to his authority. Hebrews 10.12 testifies of this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110 and Hebrews 10 seem to be saying that God will bring about the submission of his enemies prior to Christ's return. Also, while Christ is seated at God's right hand, God sends forth his mighty scepter and commands Christ to rule in the midst of his enemies. God's elect people, the church, are to carry the authority of Christ, his scepter, into the world and rule in the midst of his enemies. Much of the church has accepted the teaching that we can have no influence on the world. So until Christ returns, they say we should just be silent on certain issues because these other issues are not as important as the gospel. But politics in many ways deal with God's moral law. And moral law goes hand in hand with our gospel presentation. 
If we don't identify and properly define what sin is and who our ultimate authority is in his coming kingdom, then people are deceived into thinking that they don't need the gospel and they don't need Christ as their king. The reality is that that the Bible, we have to come to terms with this, the Bible is very political. (laughs) If you don't believe me, just look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 1 through through 12. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, O political entities... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a warning to kings and rulers of nations, political entities, because they are under the authority of Christ. To the Kathy Hochels, the Joe Bidens, the Kamala Harris's, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Xi Jinping's, the Vladimir Putin's, the leaders of Australia, the leaders of Canada, the leaders of Austria, Germany, and France. To school boards, to local governments, to godless teachers in classrooms, and to wolves posing as sheep in pulpits. They are under God's wrath for their godlessness. And the day is coming when they will submit to Christ's authority while he is seated at the Father's right hand in heaven. Turn to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, you're going to recognize this passage. For years, I was taught this passage meant something way different (laughs) than what it is. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. For years, I was taught that this passage was a prophecy of how meek and mild and peaceful Jesus would be when he walked the earth. But when Jesus came, he did lift up his voice and spoke to thousands that heard him in the streets. As for his gentleness, well, he went in a couple times and turned over tables in the temple, fashioned a whip and drove people out. Imagine if someone did that in a church today. They'd be called a 
radical extremist or a terrorist. Jesus admitted that he causes division within households and expressed special privilege to a particular ethnicity, the Jews. This is why I laugh when people paint Jesus as some kind of passive, all-inclusive, woke socialist hippie. He's none of those things. The point is that Jesus did more than quench a faintly burning wick or break a bruised reed, as this passage talks about when he walked the earth. So the meek and mild, gentle, peaceful, hippie Jesus thing is not what Isaiah 42 is prophesizing. No, this passage is talking about how Jesus rules the earth in the midst of his enemies while seated at the right hand of the Father. He sovereignly rules in the earth while not physically on the earth. He brings justice to the earth through the righteous influence of his universal church, the body of Christ. The coastlands wait for his law. That speaks of how the influence of the church spreads throughout the world as they proclaim the gospel and uphold God's moral law. Not through forcefully imposing it with a gun, but prophetically proposing it with the sword of the Spirit. And I think this aspect of the post-millennial view actually fits within a pre-millennial optimistic view. An optimistic historical pre-mill view is what I call it. <laughs> and there are, this is, this is not something I made up. This is an actual thing. There are optimistic pre-millennial people. <laughs> in the sense that Christ, ruling in the midst of his enemies, through his church, precedes his physical coming in the 1,000-year millennial reign. I see a period before the millennial reign where Christ's enemies are in the process of being put into submission to the rule of Christ through the influence of the church where things get better and better. However, just before the millennial period, the rebellion will occur as Scripture, occurred, as scripture states. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. If you turn there, if you will. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Can we go past an hour yet? Not yet. Okay. Still good. Well, I just want to make sure you keep recording. Well, now it's going to, because you keep interrupting me. <laughs> we have to start recording again. And that right. Or wrap it up in five minutes. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. We'll see. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come speaking of Christ's return, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this talks about a rebellion that must come first before Christ's return. But a rebellion against what? against the influence of God's law through his church. For there to be a rebellion against Christ and the law of God, that means the world must first be in submission to those things. The world certainly was not in submission to God's law in the first century, so there could not have been a rebellion back then. This rebellion occurs just before Christ's second coming in conjunction with revealing the man of lawlessness. And Postmillennialists view this man of lawlessness as Emperor Nero, who was revealed in the first century. So it doesn't fit 
This doesn't fit with 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. But I believe this does show something else. I believe this shows that there remains a yet future fulfillment of the prophecies in Revelation. But I also believe that 70 AD was a typological, near-time, partial fulfillment of the prophecies given in Revelation. I say a near-time fulfillment because I believe these prophecies may have dual or double fulfillments, wherein they were fulfilled in a partial sense in the first century, but a greater fulfillment of these prophecies are yet future. Well, Tim, you're just making that up now. Where'd you get that from? Well, I have a precedent for that. Isaiah 7. Turn to Isaiah 7. You will remember this just coming out of Christmas time. You will remember this as prophecy of the virgin birth. Isaiah 7, verse 10 through 17. But is this just a prophecy of the virgin birth? Remember, this was written 700 years before Christ. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, for before he, the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the Lord, or the land, whose two kings you dread, will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So we know that this was a prophecy of the virgin birth. The New Testament speaks to that. But there was a near-time fulfillment of this prophecy for Ahaz and Isaiah in his, to witness in their day. 700 years before the prophecy's greater fulfillment of, of the virgin birth of Christ. And this near-time fulfillment was in reference to a prophetess, likely Isaiah's wife, having a child in the normal way. And that before their child was old enough to refuse the evil, great judgment would come against Judah and King Ahaz for their idolatry. And that would be the sign to Ahaz, not to us. <laughs> the point is that the prophecy had a near-time partial fulfillment in 700 BC and a distant greater fulfillment in the virgin birth of Christ. And in this way, I believe the prophecies given in Revelation also have dual fulfillments. Partial fulfillments for John and the early church to see in their day, but distant and greater fulfillments in our future. Anyway, it's clear that God intentionally veiled these prophecies with metaphoric language mixed with literal applications. And we see that in, in Isaiah 7.14. The prophecy was not clear until it was fulfilled, as I believe will be the case with Revelation and the Millennium Prophecies. Now, some will argue... And I'm winding it down now, so don't get too antsy. Some will argue, this is the book of Revelation. I mean, it's supposed to be revealing something to the reader. It promises a blessing to those who read it. How can it be revealing something? How can it be a blessing if its language is veiled? Well, the blessing and the revelation are not in the chronology of the prophetic details. 
The blessing and the revelation are in who is being revealed and the great promise of his victorious return. It is the revelation of Jesus.